The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, months of calm across global equity markets have finally been shattered. The coronavirus continues to spread with more than 8,000 cases confirmed, the death toll rising, and China extending the Lunar New Year holiday. On top of that, 40% of the S&P 500 market cap reported earnings, and the Federal Reserve held interest rates steady. And Sarah, as you pointed out, it was a pretty serious week, so I'm going to keep my dumb jokes to a minimum. I'm not going to eliminate them completely. That but just means that you'll have doubled the dad jokes next week. Right, right, yeah. right. But let's get right to it uh, with our guests here. Joining us, uh, first time on the show, we're very happy to have her, is Seema Shah. She's a global strategist at Principal Global Investors. Uh, Seema, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Be happy to be here. And Sarah, I, one thing I noticed on Twitter this week is that my feed was full of uh experts on viruses. Did you notice that too? Real experts or wannabe well, experts? I, they're the same experts who are experts on Iran <laughs> yep. and trade policy. It's amazing the way Twitter cultivates these uh, these one-size-fits-all experts for you. It's amazing. You can fit in being an expert within a couple characters on Twitter and all of a <laughs> sudden you're hailed. And you know, I know they're experts because they have charts. I mean, you know, you're a real expert if you have. Charts. Well, are they verified? I yes. think that's what really matters. Well, clearly, I'm being sarcastic, <laughs> but my point is that I I crave to hear from someone who really knew what they were talking about as far as the the pharmaceutical and the healthcare industry. So, my old pal from Bloomberg Opinion, Max Neeson, uh, opinion columnist writing about pharmaceuticals and healthcare. Max, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, Seema, let's start with you. You know, I was reading one of your recent notes that obviously came out before the coronavirus, and some of the highlights um, were you preferred international equities over U.S. equities. Uh, you liked EM debt over other fixed uh, income assets. Cyclicals you liked, and you you sort of concluded that investors should be fully invested. You know, there's that old commercial though that boy, the world comes at you fast, and now we have this sort of I, I hate to call it a black swan event, but I guess you really could call it a black swan. This coronavirus that is sort of causing people to rethink all of their thoughts that they had leading into to 2020. Uh, is that happening to you at all? Or are you sort of still sticking with your, your original strategy uh, despite all the uncertainty around this virus? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, I mean, first of all, this is very, very early days. We don't know how this is going to be transitioning through. But actually, I think a lot of the themes um, are still very relevant. And specifically with emerging markets, we actually like emerging emerging Asia, um, which is, you know, maybe there's a lot of question marks over that. But if anything, you know, from a it's a long-term strategic positioning that we see. The macro story is still pretty strong. Of course, there are concerns about the growth outlook. 
but potentially you could see better entry points this year um, here. But, you know, you have to see how this is progressing. That may well change your China growth outlook and then it put things into question. Right. We've really seen emerging markets and Asia markets really take an absolute hit. You look at EEM, for example, which is the iShares MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which is 30 percent of its market cap in China at a new fresh low versus the S&P since 2003. Um But I also find it very interesting because last week we heard a lot of comparisons about the coronavirus that we're dealing with today to SARS. And all of a sudden this week, I've heard from many people, read many research notes about how now is different. And you talk about how risk velocity is elevated now, how now when you are dealing with an instance of this sort or a a global health epidemic or any other worry or risk, it can be heightened. Can you maybe walk us through why that is? Yeah, sure. So we point to three different areas where you would expect that velocity of risk to be quicker in this kind of instance. And the first thing is asset valuations. You know, they are a lot more expensive than certainly what we saw in this kind of the 2003 episode, which means that as we came into 2020, risk assets were already very vulnerable to any kind of shift in global sentiment, which is exactly what we're seeing today. So you could see sharper pullbacks in the market. And then the second thing, which to me is probably the most interesting, is a social media impact. So rewind to 2003, you would see about 100,000 tweets per day. Today, you see that amount in just one single minute. So that transitioning of fear and knowledge is so much faster. Again, so that's seeing that transition to portfolios quickly. And the third thing is, is probably the most important, is the global supply chain. It's a lot more complex. Um, it's a lot more intricate. So even companies that don't necessarily come across like they have a direct exposure to China, somewhere along the way, they have exposure. Boy, sorry. I wish I had met Seema uh, earlier this week. I was writing a Business Week story where I made that exact point that the, the valuation difference between now and 2003 is the, is the big difference. I, Very different I would story. have loved to quote, quote you. But um, just to drill down uh, back to some of uh, you know your original strategy ideas for the year, um, Walk us through uh, what you're thinking about international equities, while, why now might be the time for them to outperform the U.S. Um, we've heard heard this from some other smart people, and I, I'm just curious, um, you know, your rationale for, for approaching it that way. Yeah, sure. You know, we came into 2020, we have a view that there's going to be global growth stabilization and an upturn, so not particularly strong. But in that kind of environment, you would actually tend to expect more of those, those emerging markets um, to do well. Now, if you even compare Europe, you know, it did have a very good year last year, the best year in um, about a decade. But it's still somewhat undervalued. I mean, relative valuations are not as attractive um, as a number of areas, but it is definitely more attractive than the US. So that means that coming into this year, as long as you have a growth outlook which is positive, we know that central bank stimulus is going to be in play and there's potential for fiscal stimulus in Europe. Plus, we also have taken out a lot of the political risks that have been weighing on Europe for a number of years. So to me, that means valuations and fundamentals are all more attractive. Same thing with emerging markets. You know, aside from what we've been seeing recently, the growth outlook is good given the reduction in US-China trade tensions. There's room for monetary stimulus and there's room for fiscal stimulus. So for us, that means international equities look more attractive. So like you said, it it is early days and we need to see how uh, this coronavirus actually does develop and then eventually affect economic growth. But we've already seen some estimates. I know Bloomberg Economics is estimating that it's possible that China's GDP falls to four and a half percent. Sure, still four and a half percent growth, but low for China's standards as an emerging market country and a dominant global player nowadays. Do you have to factor in the possibility that maybe this black swan event is 
wide enough that it does derail the emerging market picture, at least in Asia and in China? And what would have to happen to get you to the point where you start reconsidering? I think that's really the key point and probably the reason why you have seen markets react in the way that they have is because it does, if it were to persist, put um, a lot of the global growth outlook into question. So, you know, again, this year, global growth should be okay. We don't, we were never expecting it to be like 2016, where China really booms growth around the world. But it was putting a bottom, kind of a floor under European growth, and it was lifting emerging Asia. So if you were to see China growth really persisting beyond that really sharp Q1 dip that I think everyone is expecting, but into Q2 and certainly into the second half, then, you know, it you start to take away the foundations of that global growth outlook. And the other thing is, is, you know, where is the China hit? So we know from the consumer side that in SARS, it bounced back very quickly. People just defer a lot of their purchases. Um, people go back to the airlines, etc. If, however, it leaks into the second half of the year and you start to see the production side, so you see factories staying closed, then those global big firms that we all know of, who at the moment have enough stockpiles to, to, to deliver to their customers, if they start running out, that's when you start to see a, a real potential growth rate. And that's when we would be worried. You know, Seema, I was a English major, not a finance major, so I'm prone to think in bad analogies. And uh, I keep thinking about this as sort of the way uh, we you'll have like a bad, nasty, cold winter that sort of de- depresses GDP, maybe hurts some companies' earnings, um, maybe some other companies use it as an excuse for their underperformance. But eventually the market uh, is very good at just sort of looking past those soft spots caused by, say, a, a nasty winter full of blizzards in the U.S. Um, and I wonder if, if a similar thing could happen. Will, as you say, you know, could the market just kind of look past this episode, especially if the sort of the rate of growth in the infection slows down? Um, is that a safe way to look at it, do you think? Or is there the danger that, uh, as you said, if it bleeds into the second quarter, is there some more long-lasting damage that can be done, uh, say, to you know, uh, the credit of some, some vulnerable companies, that sort of thing, if this sort of lasts a, a bit longer than we, than we hope anyway? That's, that's exactly it. So as of today, the way we see it is, um, you know, assuming it follows a point where it peaks relatively soon and then um, starts to fade out, then we would expect the market to bounce back. Now, going into again this year with asset markets so value, um, so valued so highly and with growth solid but not very, very strong, we knew that the market was already vulnerable to these kind of political shifts. Um, and already we'd seen the US Iran trade tensions, already not markets coronavirus, another one. And we may well see this going through the year. But as long as there's no recession on the horizon and we know that central banks are still there plugging in that liquidity, then we would expect there to be some recovery. It changes when you have a more sustainable impact on the growth outlook, which is really starting to hurt companies from a production standpoint. So for me, that's your that's where it tilts into the more dangerous side. So you mentioned central banks providing liquidity, and we did have a BOE meeting this week. We did hear from the Federal Reserve. Is there anything that Jerome Powell said uh, or that the Fed said in the statement that he said in the press conference thereafter um, that you found interesting. Uh, I think the market reaction was quite a bit, quite interesting. We saw a very steep bond rally. We see stocks start to sell off. I heard a couple people try to extrapolate that to mean that maybe markets are, are trying to see what the Fed thinks about the growth outlook. Maybe the growth outlook isn't as strong as people had thought previously. Uh, do you think you can extrapolate that from what we saw or not quite yet? Oh, definitely not quite yet. Yeah. I, I, mean, I think it just goes to show that the market's obsession with the Fed still lives, <laughs> uh, even though you know we have a fairly 
good idea about what they'll be doing for the rest of the year. There's a lot to try and read into it. I don't. I actually would give uh, Powell 10 out of 10 for giving a really good, clear communication message. And I wouldn't have really expected the market to be so disrupted. You know, I'm interested in that uh, notion you talked about uh, emerging Asia debt. How does the trade war sort of fit into all this? I mean, obviously, that's such a wild card with the coronavirus. I mean, can China really sort of meet its uh, its requirements of the trade deal? And, and how will the U.S., will they cut them some slack? Will they, you know, I think most of us believe they probably won't. Um, some of the, the comments we've seen from uh, Lighthizer and, and other officials seem to indicate that, sorry, you're not off the hook just because of this issue. Um, does that make the rest of Asia sort of a, a little more attractive than China? It does in some ways. And you know, one of the good things that we did see about Asia even last year was that a number of these countries, you know, Asia is more than than China. And a number of these countries, such as Indonesia and Malaysia, really tried to make some structural changes that meant that they could benefit from supply chain diversion. And I think investors should really be aware that these are these are long term beneficial impacts. So there is potential for them to continue to benefit. Um, I think with how this progresses with the US-China trade tensions, um, it really depends on the electorate. In election year, the government is going to listen to the electorate. If they feel like the US is going easy on China, then I think we should expect those tensions to return. If they feel like, actually, we should cut them some slack, then I think everything fades out. Where do you stand on the growth versus value debacle? Just because typically I feel like when we speak with someone and they are more so on the international equity side, it's a valuation question. And typically within the U.S. or globally, they're favoring value stocks as well. But this month, I find it very interesting. And I wonder uh, if you are on the value side, if it's testing your patience. Because if you look at S&P 500 indexes that separate growth versus value companies, we've actually now seen the strongest month for growth versus value since all the way back in early 2009, before we saw the bottom back in March of 2009. Uh, so can you maybe walk us through your thought process there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we like, well, I like value over momentum. I think of it more from a technical perspective. So the main reason being that, yes, we see an upturn, but because it's not particularly strong, the fundamental case for shifting that into that rotation isn't necessarily there. But when you have such a dislocation in valuations, it's almost rude not to start increasing your exposure to value (laughs) because when that pop comes, you don't want to be on the wrong side of it. But having said that, is it going to be a sustainable rotation when it comes through? Probably not until you get a strong growth pickup. And that Mm -hmm. may not be till the next cycle. I like how you called it a debacle, uh, Sarah. It is a bit of a debacle. I guess it is, yeah. yeah. (laughs) We hear about it all the time. Yes. I I, uh, attribute my underperformance to the debacle of... The uh, debacle of growth versus value. Seema, I think a lot of U.S. investors, um, when you start talking about uh, international equities, they get um, a little nervous about sort of uh, bottoms-up stock picking in, in the rest of the world. Um, they're just not as familiar with sort of you know the reporting requirements and the and the research involved in picking uh, individual international companies, especially EM. So how would you sort of express a bullishness uh, in international equities? Would it be in sort of ETFs that track certain nations or certain, say, EM as a whole? You know, how, how, how would one U.S. investor uh, sort of 
take advantage of of an international outperformance? Uh, You know, and that's a really, really important question going into this year because, yes, the overall emerging market story is quite positive, but you absolutely need to know your country. Um, If you look back over the last kind of 10, 15 years, a lot of these emerging markets have pursued very sensible um, macro policies. So, you know, they've started to take account of you don't want too many, too much debt imbalance and you want to have low inflation. And they've done really well. And now going into this year, a lot of them have space to cut uh, interest rates further and some have space to do fiscal stimulus. Others don't have room to do fiscal stimulus, but they're going to do it anyway because now what we're seeing is a lot of governments are starting to put their domestic politics ahead of that macro stability. And that's relatively new again. So you have to know your countries. You have to know where those domestic hotspots are going to come about. And this is kind of where active management and stock picking becomes very important. Are there any individual countries that you're really pounding the table on and any that you're saying, whoa, keep me away? But but don't pound the table here because it'll hurt people's ears <laughs> if the, in the headphones. Reverberates through right, the mic. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Look, you know, again, coronavirus aside, for, if we're looking at over the long term, we like some parts of uh, South Korea, uh, especially even the chip makers. We actually like China consumer discretionary, which I know as we sit today, it looks like a tough one, but hopefully we're going to get a good entry point. And we still like Brazil because from a macro perspective, it's a little bit more sensible than than many of the others. There are areas such as Turkey and South Africa, which from a valuation perspective do look really attractive. But every time that there is any kind of upheaval, they will be hit first. Uh, what's behind the the chipmaker bullishness? I mean, I know I've droned on and on about 5G being just a, a really big game changer coming up and artificial intelligence, all that. Is that is that part of it or is it is it more sort of a relative valuation story? It's more of the, the former, you know, the kind of the 5G story is there. It's not going away. Um, you know, they the chip makers have been beaten up before, but they kind of rebound. And also, it's they, really a boom and bust type of trade. It, it is, and if you expect to see growth and even a growth upturn, then you should see chip makers do well. I don't necessarily believe that it's not going to be hit by tensions, and especially on the U.S. China stuff. Twenty twenty one might be a tough. The countdown has begun. From May fourteenth to sixteenth, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Yeah, but at least for 2020, I'd be positive. Max, let's let's bring you into this because, you know, all eyes have turned to the coronavirus this week. Uh, to me, one of the most amazing things is this notion that China is going to build a hospital in like two weeks, two to three weeks. Uh, you know, who knows if they'll meet that goal, but if they get it done in a month, I'll still be impressed. But, you know, as we've talked about before, uh, it's not so simple in the uh, pharmaceutical world as far as getting a a vaccine for this virus on the market. Talk us through, like, what is a realistic timeline to actually think of a vaccine getting uh, through the whole clinical trial phase and onto the market uh, with a situation like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for actually getting 
uh, you know, a quick response vaccine to the market for a novel epidemic. There isn't really a, a good precedent. Uh, the, the best one I can point to is with Ebola, where it took not not one outbreak, but several to actually eventually get a vaccine to market. It was this whole sort of saga where, you know, a, a public Canadian lab developed what looked like a promising vaccine. It got licensed to a company, then another company. The company never developed it. And then when there was a new outbreak, the WHO more or less forced this smaller biotech to license the vaccine to Merck in 2014. And then the next the next outbreak rolled around. Finally, they were able to get it into the field that beyond just the development, actually getting a vaccine into kind of a hot zone and, and running a clinical trial is its own set of challenges. And then finally, only actually approved in 2019. So that, that's that's the good case. That's, quite that's sort a of a multi year. But in terms of, you know, if, we, if for the, in this case. Obviously, trying to speed up the development pathway from that. Um, I think you've seen at least one company saying that they're hoping to get into sort of initial human trials uh, by April within a few months. It's a company called Moderna using sort of this new modern approach to rapidly creating vaccines. And then from there, um, you know, that would just be your first in human safety test. From there, you get to larger trials and then actually figuring out how to manufacture the thing at scale, which Moderna probably can't do. Um, so we're looking at, at a timeline of years rather than months, unfortunately. And obviously all clinical trials don't succeed. You know, is there... Most of them don't. Right. Yeah. So is, is there any, uh, you know, notion to think that maybe a vaccine uh, for a virus like this would have a greater uh, sort of success rate in clinical trials just, you know, because there's so much effort being thrown at it? Uh, I, I would hope so. And, and it depends on who exactly it's going to come from. You know, there, there's a lot of uncertainty whether, whether Moderna's, you know, novel approach will work, a bunch of smaller companies even than Moderna working on it. And then over the longer term, you have Johnson & Johnson, uh, one of the, the few remaining large pharmaceutical companies that actually has a big vaccine unit. They're working on something, too, on some, you know, a nine month to a year timeline. Uh, I think was the one they mentioned that probably has a, a greater chance of success, just given you know the the weight of resources and expertise behind it. Uh, but you know, va vaccines are, are something that are understood comparatively well. The question is, you know, rapid development for a new virus, how effective it can be, how rapid, you know, that trade off, um, and you know, trying to do it as rapidly as possible while still having something that's effective and safe is still sort of an unanswered question. We have seen some various biopharmaceutical stocks rallying on the idea that maybe they will be the one to come out with the vaccine. And you you think about how long this takes. Sure, you need to develop the science. There's plenty of regulations you need to deal with. But you also wrote a great column on how kind of for some of these pharmaceutical companies, it, it's not really top of mind for them or maybe not in their best interest to go about working to create a vaccine for an epidemic or a pandemic. I mean, why is that? So if in the case that, you know, you actually develop a vaccine for an epidemic, if it's successful, it controls it. And then you're done. And then you're done, right. You know, um, the, the biggest revenue drivers for pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, they're, they're medicines for chronic conditions, things that people take for years, or medicines for cancer where, you know, you can charge a really high price because comparatively few people get every sub-variant of cancer that you're, you know, the little tiny segment of lung cancer patients that your medicine targets. So, um, you know, there just isn't that ability to, to charge such a high price in these cases because 
because you know more often than not, infectious diseases are in less they break out in less developed countries, um, and you see that uh, these new viruses they they tend to be transient. If you look at SARS, you know they they were a good way along on a virus, then it petered out. So there's just not an incentive to have this sort of rapid development capacity to throw resources into something that might not ever generate a return for you, and uh, and that's why another reason why I'm skeptical of these companies that are popping. In addition to the fact that some of them, many of them, in fact, don't actually have the sort of proof you'd like to see um, that they can actually rapidly generate a medicine. You know, you, you'll see them put out these sort of press releases every time there's a pandemic scare and then not come They'll out with anything. They'll be the one speculation. <laughs> then there, yeah. Then there's the question of would this actually be profitable, which is, you know, an, an unfortunate question to ask, but it's a really real one. And it's why you see fewer companies focusing on this, fewer with the capacity, both for vaccines and another sort of key issue for antibiotics, where the pipeline of new products is is minuscule. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of big companies have just entirely given up on it. And that that's a, another potential source of a pandemic, uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. The profit problem is even worse there, because if you develop an effective new antibiotic, the biggest incentive is to use it as little as possible so resistance doesn't uh, develop. So it kind of points to the need for a different incentive structure for these public health issues than the one that we currently use to, to get companies to develop innovative medicines. And I know I've seen stories about how China itself is trying to develop a vaccine, um, but I, I don't really know much about China's pharmaceutical industry and, and the sort of development process there. Is there any confidence to be had, uh, any hope that they themselves could, could come up with a, a vaccine? Uh, there's certainly that hope, although obviously not as long of a history of, of successfully developing medicines, especially novel ones. It's more robust than it used to be. You know, you, you've seen a greater wave of approvals of, of medicines, both uh, a lot of them tend to be you know, sort of copycats of medicines that have already, you know, validated targets, things we've already seen, as opposed to wholly novel medicines. But, you know, they're they're the ones who have the greatest access to virus material. They're seeing what it looks like every day. So I'm hopeful that that there might be a developed enough infrastructure there to, to get this done. And at least not now, uh, you know, to begin to build it up for, you know, what inevitably will be another epidemic in the future. Sarah, I think that uh, means it's time for our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And I got to say, I was impressed when I told Max about this uh, thing we do. He said, oh, no problem. I see. I cover biotech. I see a crazy thing every day in, in the market. It so, really is the place to be. So high hopes for Max. Max, hit us with the craziest thing you saw in markets this okay, week. Okay. The craziest thing I saw this week was uh, a small biotechnology company called Veer. Um, Already up on the news that it was working on an antibody medicine for for the virus. Uh, then um, I, I'm not sure if he's the CEO or the chairman, but uh, George Skangos, uh, affiliated with the company, former Biogen CEO, got on TV and then the stock popped an additional 15 percent. Um, you know, this, this is something that only happens in biotech where <laughs> right. like this tiny piece of of incredibly speculative news in this case about a company that, you know, has the barest track record, you know, is, is still working on getting medicines to market. It's like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to do it real fast. And then not even mentioning, you know, doing it profitably, which is another wide open question. So, um, you know, that that's something to watch in, in biotech in general and sp- you know, specifically when you see these epidemics, um, you know, those stock pops are, are really not based on much. Right. I'll say for my crazy thing, I was scrambling a little bit this week and I immediately went and looked at a couple of biotechnology <laughs> companies, although I decided not to go that route. So we won't overlap. I'm going to start a combo blockchain and biotech company. And it's just <laughs> going to You know, it, take it's off. been tried. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. <laughs> 
All right, Sarah, what do you have for us this week in the craziest thing you saw in markets? All right, so I didn't stick with biotech, but I did, in a way, uh, take the easy way out. I have to do Tesla because it really is just un freaking believable. Back in June, Tesla was trading around $180 a share. Now, after reported earnings this week, sure, we got a revenue beat. Uh, The company projected it will deliver at least 500,000 vehicles this year. Cash flow did look strong, uh, but we saw it jump even further, and now shares are worth roughly $650, so more than triple what it was worth really just half a year ago, just a couple months ago. And it is just unbelievable because I feel like so many people out there are rooting against Tesla and you could short interest in the company and, it, and it's sky high. People are just waiting for this to unravel. And so far, it, it just has not been even close to happening. Yeah. You wonder how much the short interest is part of the, the rally. You right. Know? You People wonder how much is covering. Never ending uh, short bet against Elon Musk. But it is just crazy. It is pretty good. It's pretty good. All right, Seema. Well, I'm sure this is the craziest podcast you've been on all week. So uh, you are on the hook, too, for the craziest thing you've seen this week. Okay. Well, look, we've all heard of the coronavirus. I'm guessing we've all heard of Corona beer. (laughs) Yes. Well, where are you going with this? Yeah. No, it's worrying. From January the 18th to January the 26th, uh, the number of searches of Corona beer virus in Google jumped by 2,300%. (laughs) Corona beer virus? And the most worrying thing of that is that it means that it wasn't zero before. So people were already searching for something to do with corona beer virus so far. I wonder what's going through people's heads. Do they think that this is originating from corona as in the corona beer or? I... I hate to imagine what's going through the heads of these people. Maybe we could just start selling the naming rights to viruses to sort of help raise some money to, for research. I don't know. Uh, well, this is something I was thinking about because you think about SARS, you think about MERS, you think about Ebola virus, and we are talking about the, this virus that originated out of Wuhan as the coronavirus. But technically, the, a coronavirus is like a, a family right, of viruses. It's not actually the name of it. Uh, but it was actually named. Uh, but I think it's a name that none of us feel comfortable pronouncing over and over again. I'm glad you didn't say you were also thinking about naming rights for, for viruses. Because no, well, it really is not an, doing it's that, an awful, terrible thought. And I'm kind of ashamed myself. No, for, for I'm absolutely not thinking that. We'll leave right. that to you. All right. <laughs> All right. It's your, ta- your turn. Well, of course, my uh, craziest thing has to do with the coronavirus too and it's this massive sell-off in uh carnival cruise lines uh stock because there was a, a ship in italy where someone started uh coming down with some some symptoms that may have been uh coronavirus and i think it was like seven thousand people on the ship all of a sudden quarantined on this ship i mean what a nightmare but i think it really it's it, you know it's worrisome from the point of how quickly this type of thing could go pear-shaped you know Mm -hmm. how how the paranoia about this could really um start affecting uh the economy even if the even if the actual human toll has not yet gotten that bad outside of china um just the the paranoia about it did steven do you think about that at all sort of that the the psychological effect on on confidence oh absolutely i mean even in sars actually a lot of the impact was from that uncertainty and fear which stopped people from going out and socializing in public places and you're already starting to see that effect and also again it's like i said the social media impact that rush of fear just goes across the world very very quickly now right right I don't like to socialize in public places anyway. I'm kind of a loner, Sarah. So yeah. are you? <laughs> I don't. I don't really get that uh, <laughs> sense from you, Mike. Well, I don't like to. I do. You know. When you're forced to. Yeah. My yeah. wife makes me go. Yeah. Mingle. 
she makes you, and, and you have no choice but to say yes. yes. Um, but we will certainly be tracking uh, the spread of the virus over the next week and any market fallout that may come um, or may not come. But with that said, Seema Shah and Max Neeson, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks so much for having me. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek, Mike is at Reganonymous, and Max Neeson is at Max Neeson. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges and edited by Jarrell Dillard. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.